Good morning and welcome again to Trinity High's virtual service. We're coming up to the anniversary this week of when the pandemic really started to affect us, when we started to feel the effects of it personally. As Sarah Beth pointed out, last week was the anniversary of the last Sunday we had in-person church together. And this week marks the anniversary of us going online. It's hard to believe an entire year has passed that way. We went for a walk last week with a friend and we realized that because we'd been out of the city at different times, we'd not seen each other in person, over Zoom, yes, but not in person for an entire year. And it got us thinking again about those few weeks just prior to the pandemic and what life was like back then. As a church, we had a couple of large events. One was our friend Ali's baptism, which was a wonderful evening. We crammed a bunch of people into Tim and Ruth's apartment, just highlight of the year. The other was an evening for relationship enrichment, where we had 50 people come and enjoy a nice dinner together and a guided conversation. Personally, we had three different sets of good friends come and stay in our home for a few nights each. Who would have thought that would ever be such a big deal? But it was just great fun seeing all of them, not knowing, of course, that we wouldn't be seeing them for a long time yet. We had a friend's baby shower where we got to celebrate our friend Lachey and Cameron. And in that same month, we had a leaving party for our friends Stuart and Bethany, not to mention the numerous dinners and coffees with friends in Amrita's. Uh, the last one, I think, was with my German friend Melanie right before she moved back to Germany. And so we went from life looking like that in February to March, where all of that just disappeared. It was and is very painful to have life interrupted in this way. One minute we're connected in all these multiple ways, the next we're isolated from each other, cut off. And I know as much of a blessing as Zoom has been, Sometimes it feels like a curse. I know for many of us, you, know, you, you just don't want any more screen time if you can at all help it. Some friends in our congregation have caught COVID. Talking to one or two of you, I know it's been a long and slow road to recovery. Others of us have lost friends or colleagues or loved ones. As I said at the Christmas carol service, and I'll say it again now, this has been an extraordinarily difficult time. And I just think it's important to acknowledge the reality of how difficult and painful this experience has been for all of us at these different levels and in these many different ways. But I hope that as we see more people vaccinated, that as we see more of life beginning to open up, perhaps by the fall or just a bit beyond, as we look forward to being together again in person, I hope we will allow what has been this painful and difficult experience to develop in us a greater and deeper sense of empathy for each other. As we've become aware of our own isolation, our own alienation, our own terrible loneliness, as Henry Nouwen says, this can become a gift which will allow us in the future to step into each other's loneliness and alienation in a way we could have never done before. On that note, 
I want to continue the theme from last week, which was about seeking love and unity amongst ourselves in our relationships, in our community. And one of the things we said was that this requires us working to enter into each other's worlds, working to understand each other so that we don't just sympathize from a distance, leaving each other in our loneliness, but we can empathize up close. So many of these themes will appear in this week's interview with my friend Kyra Dawkins, who is very gracious and doesn't go into the, the far more offensive and difficult things that she's had to put up with over the years. So one or two examples she gives are really just very generous placeholders. But listen carefully and you'll hear these themes of isolation and alienation, but you'll also hear about a wonderful thing that can happen when people decide to step into each other's worlds. I hope you enjoy it. Good morning and welcome. Uh, this morning, it's my pleasure to be able to interview our very own Kyra Dawkins, who's just published her first book titled The We and the They. Uh, author Karina Cheer says of the book in her unique style, Dawkins calls back the tradition of oral storytelling to remind readers deeply immersed in today's individualistic society that we are ultimately larger parts of a powerful whole, a collective identity. Kyra, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for having me. This is awesome. <laughs> oh, it's great, great to have you. So uh, first of all, uh, tell us, wh wh where are you? Uh, wh what have you been up to lately? So... I am currently in the illustrious city of Cleveland, Ohio. Um, clearly my heart is in New York, but I right. love being here with my beautiful family. Um, you know, 2020 was wild. I mean, like it, uh, granted it threw a curveball at a lot of us, but you know, that was mm. the year that I graduated from college, but you know, that situation became virtual. So since mm. virtually graduating from Columbia, I've been working as an author coach for New Degree Press and a blog content creator for Lila Wellness. By some miracle, I was able to secure two virtual jobs during quarantine. So praise be to God on that. Um, also in July of 2020, I published my debut novel, The We and the They. And I still can't believe that, that actually happened. Like, um, fortunately, again, like I'd be able to navigate all of these projects virtually so I can keep working towards all of these goals, my jobs and my future writing endeavors um, as I transition back to New York City um, sometime this year. Oh, that's great. I'm really glad to hear you saying you're moving back to the city. That, that's the best bit of news. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm sure it does feel really very surreal to have your first novel out at the ripe old age of, what is it, 22? Is that right? <laughs> So, <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm really curious, what inspired you to, to write this book? What, what gave you the idea in the first place? Hmm. So I guess like, like little fragments of the idea have been like floating around in my subconscious mind, I guess, since I was like a teenager, but I didn't officially start writing the We in the Day until it was like the early part of my senior year in college. I mean, you know, senior year of college naturally like welcomes in an existential crisis of sorts. So as I looked over the precipice into real adulthood, <laughs> I started to take inventory of who I am. So, so, so wait, 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 let me, let me just interrupt you there. You, you, so you were having an existential crisis and you think to yourself, okay, then I'll write a book. <laughs> 
you know, you know, I tell you what, in my senior year, um, I, I'm not sure I could tell you what an existential crisis was, let alone, you know, write a book in, in response to it. But, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's me. Carry, carry on. <laughs> well, I feel like for me, like, I've always, hmm, that's actually a really good point, because I think that in order for me to make sense of life, I have to contextualize it in narrative. Hmm. So, hmm. In trying to make sense of what was happening around me in terms of narratives I knew or wanted to know, in doing so, I realized that so much of how I understand myself, or I guess my I, um, is profoundly shaped by the we's of the collectives that I'm part of. Mm. And you know, these communities are ingrained with rich narratives of beauty, strength, and survival. And like, Again, I've always been naturally drawn to narrative. I feel like something that you say a lot inside of in like your sermons in Trinity Heights is that we're all naturally drawn to narrative, but that's particularly true for me. And I've been infatuated with all kinds of stories my whole life, but the stories that my grandfather told my siblings and I throughout our childhood sparked the desire to understand how narratives like really mold our identities and like the collectives that I'm part of versus you know, how I perceive myself and how the world might perceive me because of collectives that I'm in. Sure. And yeah, I would say, huh, how did I get the idea like for the more specific logistics for the We in the Bay? I knew that I wanted to lean into the oral tradition components of the We in the Bay because I always loved the way like a human voice imbues a narrative with a sense of weight and legacy because ultimately, stories don't exist like floating around in some elusive ether they exist inside of people's hearts minds and bodies like it's a very mm. corporeal thing to like experience a narrative so it's almost as if they're interwoven into dna and beckoned out of us by our life experiences i've always felt this way about stories just in general but i knew i needed to honor this um in the we in the day specifically and hopefully, God willing, my future work. Right, so, so you, you had a lot of influence then from oral tradition, literally the stories that your, your grandfather spoke to you um, and, and, and told you as, uh, growing up. And, and actually, I can relate to that because my, my grandfather from my dad's side was a, was a great storyteller. And th those stories live with me. I mean, they're, they're, they're always you know, really special. And, and you're right, they sort of get woven into your DNA, into the fabric of, of your life. And so I, I can imagine that being a really very rich source to sort of draw from as, as you're writing. Um, so when I find a story that's really compelling, like, like the one you tell in your book, uh, I, I like to know, you know, how, how the author developed their storyline. Uh, so I'm interested, you know, what, what was your process? Do you, did you have it like all mapped out? Because I know some authors like to have a paragraph for, for each chapter or something like that. And they know the end from the beginning, they sort of work backwards. So did you have it all mapped out like that before? Or, or you, you knew exactly where the story was going? Or, or did you have a sort of an initial uh, sort of inspiring idea and, and then just let it take you for the ride? Hmm. Again, I knew from the outset that I wanted to like embrace the collective first person and use the pronoun we. So I want I knew that from the beginning that I was going to name the two groups involved, the we and the they. And I also knew that I wanted to hone in on the narratives of six we characters as like a memorial of sorts because a huge trend or a huge theme throughout the we and the they is knowing that a person can stay alive and that their legacy can continue to live on through narrative. Um, but 
honestly, a lot of the rest of the story really did catch me by surprise. I feel like the initial seed was there and I followed through on nurturing it. But a lot of the story, again, especially some of the more um, fantastical elements mm -hmm. or um, some of the more, I guess, sad or like heart-wrenching moments um, emerged during the writing process. Because it was one of those things where as I was writing it, I couldn't shy away from it. Mm. I Really, I was surprised by the lack of control I had over the story. Mm. I mean, when authors say that cliche thing of <laughs> like, you know, stories writing themselves, I mean, that was definitely true for parts of the We in the Day. Um, yeah, especially, again, especially for the heavier elements of the story, because I found myself like kind of sucked in by the gravitas of the scene. Um, so, but at the end of the day, like I decided to let the surprises come and not work against them. I mean, which I hope will serve me well in my creative process going forward. And I hope that it paid off in the wee end of the day. Well, I think it did. I mean, look, it, it may sound like a cliche, but it's, it's, it's true. I, you know, I speak to friends who, who are painters, let's say, and, and they say the same thing you just said, you know, you sort of have to serve the art as, as if the art itself knows what's needed. And it's almost like a sort of, almost like a sort of out of body experience that the art just sort of happens to you. Um, so so this, is, this is really helpful because we're, we're having this conversation today uh, in the middle of a series, which uh, we're, we're looking at some of the, the core values of our church. And we're, we're telling a very uh, particular story about how God wants to Put a, a broken, fractured humanity back together, uh, and our, our life as a community, as a church, is, is meant to embody that that particular story. And um, in, in many ways, that's actually what your your book's about, right? That there's this glimmer of hope in your book, isn't there? That that uh, we might we might actually be able to recover our humanity if we can learn to to be together again. Um, so. As we consider that part of our, our corporate uh, storytelling, I want, I want to go back a few years to when you and I first met. And I remember I was speaking at a seminar on, on gospel and race. Uh, so, so on top of being good friends for a while now, I feel like we've been talking about gospel and race right from the start. And you, you've got a really interesting story about how you got to, to that seminar and, and the journey you've, you've been on long before you ended up at Trinity Heights. Could, do you mind sharing some of that journey? Absolutely. I think that it's been a very... Like, I mean, I really feel like the spirit has been working in my life um, through this story and how I ultimately came to Trinity Heights. So basically almost everyone at my church back home, like here in Ohio is white. A huge part of the reason why my family started to go to this particular church is that they had the resources to take care of my um, autistic, nonverbal and epileptic sister, Kendra. Um, so we started going to this church back at home because they're willing to provide those resources for Kendra and we felt loved in that way. However, like over the years, like my family has lived in this part of Cleveland for about, oh my goodness, <laughs> um, almost 15 years now. And like over the past decade or so of being there, the church has become a little bit more diverse, but it seems like, especially given like, certain polarizing situations um the church almost seems to like reassert its establishment and whiteness and i'm not just saying this because like all of the people who sing on stage are white or all the pastors are white it's just i've noticed that a lot of the the language like others people of color either explicitly or implicitly like for example 
Um, I remember a couple of times in the pastors have talked about things in literally black and white terms, like the head pastor of the church said that it's important to speak in a black and white manner so that people can like understand you. But he also talks about the black church as if it's a separate entity from the church that he pastors over. So especially during times of like heightened racial tension in the country, he literally just says, oh, the black church is dealing with XYZ thing. And I'm over here like, um, like, why is the black church a separate entity? Isn't this a problem or isn't this something that is piercing at the heart of the church at large? And it just so happens to be particularly impacting our black brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, myself included, because I am a black woman. Um, and as soon as he said these words, I became like hyper aware of like my skin. And I felt like my, the color of my skin. And I, I mean, I felt like the people around me, I felt alienated from them and I felt othered. But it's strange. So even though I spent so much time at my home, like the church here in Ohio, feeling othered because of my Blackness, um, when I went to New York City my freshman year, I guess I did some church hopping, church shopping. Um, and my mom comes from, uh, like my mom's side of the family comes from a denomination where a lot of the leadership, I mean, is like predominantly black, right? And so there's a very, very famous church in New York City that my mom's side of the family was very heavily involved in. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought, oh, maybe I should start to go there. And it was um, basically, it kind of felt like a toxic inversion of what I experienced at my church back home, mm -hmm. where they would say, it's important for, they would also speak in black and white terms, but it was important for them to assert blackness. Like this is, we have to be intentional to lift up our music and our culture and mm. our hairstyles. And it was strange because when I first got there, because of the color of my skin, they literally ushered me to the front row. I was like, oh, this is great. But when a person who, you know, lacked melanin, um, when, <laughs> when they walked up to the door, they sent them to the balcony. I saw mm. this with my own mm. eyes. Mm. It was just very strange. And so, Huh. I, I see what you mean by the sort of dangerous inversion of, yeah. of what you've already been experiencing, yeah. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it seems like, literally there was one sermon in particular where he said he used the term, like one of the pastors used the term devil and white man interchangeably. Mm. It was so strange. Mm. And so like, I wanted to believe that was a church for me because again, I had never experienced being in a predominantly black environment before. I mean, I don't want to like paint the picture that that's the case for black churches at all. No, it's just that in this particular sure. space, it was just, I was trying to cling to the hope that this was a church for me. But then like one of my colleagues, colleagues, friends <laughs> um, at Christian Union at Columbia, um, he was one of my white male friends. Um, I was just meeting with him and a few of our other friends for lunch after church. And um, suddenly, like I had just the urge, like after listening to the sermon that morning, I just had the urge. I was just thinking like, you know, 
I wondered, like, I, I wondered how wonderful it would be to just run up and punch him in the face. Like, I literally had that thought, like, ooh, like, ugh, like, it, it would just be so satisfying, just, you know, to avenge my ancestors. I don't know, it's just a strange moment. So I realized in that, in that moment that it was not safe or healthy for me to go back to that church because huh, it wasn't safe for me to go back, but I also was so afraid that there wouldn't be a place that accepted me for who I was granted like yeah so I was just at first I knew it wasn't healthy for me to keep going that to that church but I was also afraid that I wouldn't be accepted in a new church if I were to start looking for one right. so it was literally an answer to uh, like an answered prayer when on the Saturday after I decided to not go to my previous church I went to a Christian union seminar about of all things <laughs> grace and the gospel and Stephen, <laughs> you were one of the guest leaders, like contributing to the discussion. And though I could not make much sense of it at the time, I remember deciding that I would go to Trinity Heights Church like the next morning. And you know, that is why I am here. Like that decision put me on the direct trajectory mm -hmm. to my baptism, which was incredible. Um, and this yes. moment. Uh, th that's amazing. So, so, so you know, you, so you had this sense of sort of being sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place, I suppose you could put it, between being othered and feeling like an outsider almost, and and then you go from that to feeling in, embraced and accepted, but for for all the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and and so I think that takes a tremendous amount of um, I think it takes a tremendous amount of courage and discernment uh, because I think when you do find a place of acceptance, it's really easy to just sort of feel very comfortable and just safe there and, and just stick with that you know why, why wouldn't you uh and and i remember you know i remember when i was in my in my teens uh on on our street there were a lot of ethnic minorities and and so that sort of minority status created a sense of acceptance and belonging mm -hmm. and uh, so amongst ourselves we did talk about white people and uh, it, it became sort of uh, an, an in-group out-group thing and uh, yeah, that could be a very comfortable place to be, especially if you've, if you've ever felt like a, an outsider. Um, okay, so so you decided after that uh, that seminar that uh, you, you you were going to you know, where we met, you, you'd come to Trinity Heights. Uh, can you can you tell me a bit about what's been different in your experience at Trinity Heights, and, and perhaps what what new understandings of the gospel have, have you have you come to over over time? Well, I mean, first and foremost, I feel like I could be my whole self at Trinity Heights. I mean, again, my blackness does shape my identity, but it doesn't define all of it. I mean, again, first and foremost, I am a child of God. And I feel like everyone at Trinity Heights is earnestly seeking something. Like, even if they identify as skeptics, right. they understand or are are willing to be in proximity to people who primarily view themselves as children of God. And I've never, another thing I really appreciate is that I've never been asked to speak on behalf of all black people, which happens entirely too often um, mm. in life. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I also I don't feel pressured to mask my pain in order to make people more comfortable. Um, and I've also come to realize that Trinity Heights like genuinely feels like family. And you know, naturally sometimes family members can be annoying at times or just radically different for me, but that doesn't mean that I love them any less. Right. Um, uh, my family, we, ne we never get on each other's nerves. 
<laughs> I mean, it's, it's so right, right? I mean, you know, family can be annoying, but we, but we, we love each other. And uh, so, so I, I remember talking about how it, it, it's, it's difficult, right, sometimes, because the gospel, um, some of what you've been describing, it, it's, it seems to require the wronged party to do the heavy lifting, right? I, I, and I think it's important for people to know that the, the gospel isn't easy. That there's, there's a serious cost in, in sort of taking up our cross and following Jesus uh, into this, this journey into unity and, and reconciliation. Um, would, would you mind just speaking about that a little bit? Um, what, what you find perhaps difficult about this sort of gospel view of things? Mm -hmm. Well, I think this is where my experience at Trinity High Church specifically has helped me deepen my understanding of the gospel. I mean, on the one hand, it does seem harder for the wrong party since they're the ones who actively have to extend grace and endure ostracization, oppression, etc. Right. But I feel like in Christ, the wronged party is not entitled to bitterness and anger over that. Mm -hmm. Like, like extending grace to a person does not come with like this tag being like, look at me, I'm extending grace to you, you know, like, <laughs> You can't, you're not entitled <laughs> to the bitterness associated with that. Um, if anything, that just perpetuates cycles of like relational toxicity. Like if like, is forgiveness really forgiveness if the other person is still in your debt somehow? Like, mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, but on the other hand, I actually am starting to think that it can be just as hard um, or, you know, it, it's hard to at least some degree for the party inflicting the harm or what, you know, could be called the privileged party. Mm. I mean, in the pursuit of reconciliation and healing, the privileged party has to be willing to sacrifice their privilege for the sake of the gospel and, you know, acknowledge that they were never entitled to having more than the wronged party to begin with. Which, you know, I mean, that's part of the reason why it, Jesus says, like, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. Like, the wrong party often sacrifices their emotional wellness and safety, which is painful, very painful. And the other party has to be willing to sacrifice elements of its often, frankly, illegitimate status. But both require dying to self. Right. And it's it's all painful. Like, I don't want to minimize the pain of it because it low-key is painful, but to put it into perspective, it's not nearly as painful as dying for all the sins of the world like Jesus did. Right, so, so what, what you're expounding here uh, brilliantly is, is the meaning of the cross. I mean, the, the cross is this call for all of us to give up our privilege. You know, who, whoever wants to be first must be last. Whoever wants to be great amongst you must be, must be servant of all. So it's, it's, we're all being invited to, to do this thing of relinquishing whatever privilege we have in service of other and, and love of other people. Um, so I, I want to think about how some of some of this stuff we've been talking about has, has sort of worked its way out into the life in real life in the life of our community, uh, and, and really how, how you've sort of experienced that and been and been part of that. Um, in the message last week, I was talking about how love and friendship can't be based, our community can't be based on people 
always agreeing with each other. Uh, we, we have to find ways to love people who hold views we disagree with or, or which we might even find offensive, right? And, and I, I know in the past, you know, you, you've told me, uh, you, you've had different friends uh, who, who've said, look, I, I can't go to Trinity Heights because there's someone there attending or maybe a few people attending who hold these views that I just really find offensive. Um, so, so maybe for, for example, uh, we've, we've had one or two mutual friends at Trinity Heights who would just disagree with the idea of uh, white privilege. And I know for some, it's just a fact. For others, it's this controversial idea. Um, I, I remember talking to um, what one friend who, who actually had some actually really interesting things to say on the issue, which I, I haven't thought about. But, but I wanted to explain, look, here's why I, I disagree with you. And so I told him, I said, look, as a kid growing up in the early 1980s in a little seaside town called Worthing in the UK, I said, I would have loved to have gone to school back then and not be called every racist name you can think of. I would have loved to have gone to school and not experienced sometimes physical violence and social exclusion on, on the basis of not being white, right? Uh, and, and, I, and I said, look, that would have been a, what's the word? Oh yes, a real privilege, right? <laughs> Look, if you, if you if you if you don't if you want to call it majority privilege, then, then we can go with that too. But but I think in every society that there's always varying degrees of privilege that one group of people experience over another, mm. and and sometimes it's far more pronounced, and the history is is more more ugly. Um, so so to, to bring it back around to, to your friends who, who who didn't want to come to church as long as this or that person was there. Um, the, I couldn't help laughing because the, the irony at the time uh, is that not only were you attending Sunday services with this offensive person, uh, but you were actually been attending community group with the same person and eating dinner with them at our dining room table every Tuesday night. Um, so so how, how do you respond to those friends who, who look at that kind of behavior and think, well, well, Kyra, that's just wrong or well, that's, that's just crazy. Why, why are you doing that? <laughs> well, I think that again, leaning into what you said earlier, gospel is hard. Like it's, it's not easy. Um, I think that it also goes back to this notion of entitlement um, to bitterness or even comfort, um, particularly on behalf of like the wronged party. I mean, a lot of these friends often said they, would, they wouldn't be around people that held beliefs that questioned or undermined their experience. Mm -hmm. And granted, there are some more extreme situations in which some people were blatantly racist. But here's what I don't understand about that position. Like, why would someone give anyone the authority to undermine or question their humanity when their humanity rests in Jesus and what he, the work that he did on the cross is life, death, and resurrection? I mean, unless my life is at stake in like some very extreme situation, sure. like, you know, why would I let anyone's presence dictate my absence? I mean, where's the growth in that for me or for the other person? Frankly, if I avoided all the rooms where there were problematic people, I wouldn't even be able to be in a room by myself. <laughs> I mean, truly, like I'd be lying to myself if I said I didn't benefit from any privilege. Like, sure, I don't benefit from majority privilege or like, you know, sure. masculinity and things like that. But I do have like elements of privilege in my life. There are areas of control that I need to be willing to relinquish. Mm. So it's definitely not wrong to be mm. 
to enter into these spaces with people that are often or can be offensive but it, I mean it's also not comfortable it's like admittedly navigating nuance in relationships is never comfortable and in the example that you're alluding to um with the offensive person in question though they annoyed me from time to time I actually enjoyed a lot of my conversations with them and their rather unique and charismatic sense of humor um and honestly in knowing them there was a lot less room for bitterness in my heart which I think can be the beginning of reconciliation the gospel brings yeah yeah I, I love that um and, and I particularly love what you said just now about if we, if we can't if we can't be in a room with any problematic people then you won't be able to be in a room with yourself <laughs> That's, I mean, that, that is just that is just spot on uh, and, and I think this does highlight one of the, the problems with how pri privilege is sometimes functions as a concept in, in, in a way it's a sort of starts to function in, in a way like the, the law function for the Pharisees, you know, it becomes a sort of legalism, which, um, well, as you pointed out very well, it's uh, sort of a loser's game. <laughs> Kyra, I really appreciate you sharing your story with us today. Again, I, I can't, you know, I can't thank you enough for speaking this morning. Oh my goodness, thanks so much for having me. It was such a pleasure and honor and I really miss all of you guys so much. Yeah, we, we miss having you around and, and, and hurry on back to New York City as, as soon as you can, it'll, it'll be great. Okay. Um, as always, it's, it's inspiring uh, to hear from you. Um, if anyone's interested in getting a copy of Kyra's book and reading the we and the they, uh, you can find it for sale on Amazon and uh, be, be sure to check it out. So Kyra, we wish you all the best with your new book and uh, we'll, we'll see you in New York City, okay? See you in NYC. <laughs>